welcome to the Advocate Society. I'm Paul Tadros. And I'm Anthony Draper. The Advocate Society is a legal blog and podcast dedicated to discussing how the law interacts with political and social issues and affects our lives. And welcome listeners to season two of the Advocate Society. Uh, we had a successful first season, shortened a little bit by COVID-19, but we're back and ready to bring you the real issues going on in what should be a very interesting fall 2020. But first, Anthony, like, how's your summer? How was your summer? Pretty wild. Um, one of the few law students, I think, that had an in-person internship, but that was still very, you know, shortened and full of social distancing and got to have an inside look at how at least one court in California is handling COVID-19 while also trying to handle the massive cases that they get every single day. So that was a, a pretty interesting experience. How was yours? My summer was pretty good for the most part. Um, obviously, it did not look the way it had originally been planned. I was supposed to be moving to Brooklyn, New York for the summer to intern at the Brooklyn DA's office. But luckily, like they had a remote internship option that I went ahead and took. And it was very interesting to do, um, given the time and place we're in after the murder of George Floyd, um, to be interning in a prosecutor's office. Um, it was definitely a cool perspective to um, gain and kind of See how it works from the inside, obviously, um, see what they're doing right at the Brooklyn DA's office. Um, they, it is a pretty progressive office, but obviously there are things to improve and um, the system as a whole needs to improve as uh, we'll talk more about later. But today I'm really excited to present to you all uh, Sierra Russell and Chris Argetis. Sierra Russell is a student affairs professional in Columbus, Ohio, and Chris Argetis is the director of the Intercultural Center at Occidental College in Los Angeles, California. Two very close friends of mine, we were all co together at UC Santa Barbara and Anthony and I had a very very good conversation about what the summer of 2020 looks like and how race and law really intersect. Anthony what are your thoughts on the initially on the conversation? So the conversation I think went um, into a lot of topics and details that you're usually overlooked um, and I think that shows kind of just how much Chris and Sierra have thought about these issues and, and just how involved and qualified they are to talk about them. We get we look at things from not just what equality is and how it functions in the justice system, but what it looks like in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement and kind of policing and the law system as a whole. And I thought that was a really fascinating discussion that, uh, that they had. Well, uh, I won't keep you all from listening to this amazing conversation, a very needed conversation at the law school. Um, and uh, one else, stay tuned at the end. Uh, we both, we have advice for you all as you head into the new year. But without further ado, folks. So uh, I've been waiting to have you all on the show, um, and I'm so excited to have you guys on the Advocate Society. Uh, we have Chris Argetis. He's the director of the International Cultural Center at Occidental College in Los Angeles, and Sierra Russell, who's a great social justice advocate and student affairs professional in Columbus, Ohio. Thank you both for coming on to the Advocate Society. Lily, I just want to do a check-in. Like, it's been a while. Like, uh, so tell us how COVID has been in LA and Columbus. And how is the George Floyd movement? And how has that impacted the communities there? It's been different. It's been a notable change in just campus dynamics. So moving, I guess, more contextually in Columbus, Ohio, where a lot of folks are familiar with Ohio State University, I've moved from working at Ohio State to a smaller 
private art school in the area um, that's specifically downtown. And so moving downtown has really had a more visible impact on COVID. It's not as open. Most things are closed. Um, but if you do get closer towards like the OSU campus, there are still a lot of students out and about. There are actually a few protests um, at our courthouse when COVID shutdowns first began, protesting, not wanting to wear masks. And so it was very interesting seeing kind of the beginnings of COVID happening here. Folks thinking we had a really abrupt shutdown early on, which we did, um, but it's been slowly reopening and it seems as though our governor is okay with that. We had just recently issued a new required mask mandate, but it's still very obvious that folks are congregating, moving out and about, living somewhat of their normal daily lives. But a lot of our campuses and um, like local businesses are still closed. And if they are open, hours have changed. A lot of just um, like walking around outside downtown is definitely different. Um, and I will say since the Black Lives Matters protests, downtown has also looked starkly different and seemingly in more push to address COVID after we see a height of protests related to George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, um, and folks associated with Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, I think the one distinction I would make is LA is very vast. I think people often forget how many <laughs> different ways LA exists and, you know, the people that are represented in those various parts of LA. So, you know, I think it's in many ways, the numbers as it relates to COVID-19 have just gotten increasingly higher and higher. You know, I think we're seeing a lot of affluent communities who are a little bit more resistant to <laughs> wearing masks and following um, social distancing regulations. So it's interesting. And then I think we also have a lot of, you know, communities that are forced to work and having to put their lives at risk to put food on the table. We, you know, we have an incredibly large houseless community. So there's a lot of layers, I think, to the pandemic here, a lot of politics to that. Uh, and I think, you know, but on the other hand, I, I do think at least in the beginning um, of the protests and the uprising for Black Lives, I was actually really moved by how many people were turning up. I think that that, and, and, and just the volume of noise and energy um, in that regard, I think that subsided a significant amount. I mean, there were, there were days where you would go to sleep to fireworks, you would wake up, you know, to noise. And, and, it, and to me, it was exciting, I think, to see that type of turnout. That's no longer present. And so I think we're just sort of right now, everybody's just paused. Yeah, so and in being this pause, because I feel like there is a pause here in Madison as well. Like, I think it's a good time to reassess and especially reassess like what law and social justice like, and how that intersects. So let's start with like, what does law do right and wrong? I know that is also a loaded question, but uh, like just one thing that like law could actually do, I'm just gonna give you guys a moment and then whoever's ready. I will be honest from my perspective, I don't think our law system here in Columbus are doing many things well at all. Um, I will say it drew a lot of attention to local lawmakers, um, the protests in specific. And one of the first protests after 
the murder of George Floyd, my partner and I had attended. Um, and at that same protest, one of our Congresswomen, Joyce Beattie, who's a black woman, was pepper sprayed, thinking about the ways in which Columbus police um, kind of incited a lot of violence and directly against a black woman who is in a position of power and a lawmaker in our nation, um, opened up a lot of conversation for Columbus residents of where do we kind of stand in terms of peaceful protests versus like regulating what folks might deem as riots or violent protests, however folks might perceive that situation. Um, but I think the presence of Congresswoman Beatty really shifted that narrative for folks in Columbus saying, hey, like folks are just out here trying to peacefully protest and fight for our rights. And it was a relatively high level case of like, you can't say that we're doing it wrong if we have folks who should be changing our system for the better out here participating and also being brutalized um, and being reprimanded for like speaking out. And so although things have slowed down, I think something that I'm unfortunately seeing is still a high law and state trooper presence in Columbus. Our state house is still surrounded by state troopers on a day-to-day -day basis, even though the amount of protests have gone down. And one thing I would say for law to do better is to really just like look at the side of history that hasn't been told. Something that I was already like itching to talk about when you asked your question is looking at intersectionality and knowing that Kimberly Crenshaw started as a law scholar um, and critical race theory has roots in law and looking at those kind of branches as areas that are seen as kind of electives or nuance or for certain people of a certain belief without realizing that there are a lot of folks who are just not represented in our legal system. And the history of that is just simply erased. And so I think as we are in that moment of pause, um, I think it's really easy for that moment um, prior to be erased and saying, oh, well, things are good now. Things are calm now. The governor has made statements about condemning the actions of CPD that day and things are moving forward when in reality, I will say I have not seen any change in working for a campus that has our own private security team. Um, I feel much safer being on this campus knowing that CPD has no rights where I live. Our legal system is kind of giving band-aids and giving public statements without political action, which is a lot of what I am used to seeing or my perspective of law. And one recommendation I would say from a non-lawyer is to just educate yourself on how different forms of law can actually influence people's like lived experiences from a marginalized identity um, and marginalized lens. Yeah, that, I mean, that's awesome. Chris, what do you have to add to that? I would not anything. Yeah, and like kind of building off of that, then how do we begin having the conversation? Because uh, at least like Anthony and I have observed in the law school last couple of years that folks are in certain camps, but as future lawyers and people in the legal system, who are going to be charged with ushering in this change. How do we have the conversation on race? I think like any system, whether it's law or otherwise, you really have to interrogate the way power manifests itself within that system and is executed by lawyers. And, you know, I think perpetuated by lawyers. I think the exciting thing about the law is it has the ability to set precedent. This is what you're going to school for, right? How to make a case 
<laughs> so I think that for me, though, if a person who is moving through law school who wants to practice law, you know, is not deeply interrogating their power and their privilege and their social conditioning, it only further, I think, fuels anti-Blackness, um, the prison industrial complex, you know, how poor folks are disenfranchised in this country and don't have access to lawyers. I think that, you know, I think that you made a little bit of an assumption when you asked the question, how can we, as folks who want to make change, talk about race? I don't think all lawyers want to make change. <laughs> I think a lot of lawyers want to make money. I don't think there's anything wrong with going to law school to be a lawyer. I just think that, that there are values that I believe in, I think other people on this call believe in, that unfortunately are not shared always. And so... You know, if the vast majority of people who go into law school don't necessarily carry those values, maybe the better question is, how do you uh, encourage people who are lawyers to think critically about, like Sierra said, race um, and the erasure of people of color in that field and how I think it can maintain white supremacy sometimes? So does that start with obviously diversifying law classes, right? Like uh, incoming classes should include more diverse students. Diverse students and diverse faculty, diverse literature, diverse foundational like theory, right? Um, and something that I was just gonna say earlier is, as you asked the question of how do we have that conversation? I think a lot of folks see conversations as how do I talk about race? But more importantly, sometimes it's how do you listen about race? How do you listen to someone telling you their racial experience? I think something Chris and I have talked about for years now is like listening to understand, not to respond, thinking that it's not an argument when someone is telling you something they've experienced that was racially charged or was a racialized incident. And also thinking about the differences between what conversations mean to people. There's a difference between a debate and a dialogue and a discussion. And I think at the very best, um, I see a lot of lawyers having discussions, but not really having true dialogue around what is going on and how do we enact change. Folks are just sharing their opinions and no one's really listening and then internalizing that to create something new. I think as you kind of mentioned before, a lot of what we see is upholding our current systems and kind of carving out pieces for people to fit in it instead of changing the system itself. So that's what I would recommend is having more opportunities for law to change and to not just mold, but to create a new, because that's kind of the purpose of law, as Chris said, is to create precedents. And so not feeling like there has to be something in the past that said this was right or wrong. We're looking for the future and saying, well, now we know this is right or wrong based on what we are listening to and what we're hearing. I think the word equal needs to be really looked at because I, I don't think that we, I don't collectively know what the hell that means. I think equal in particular, as it's painted in the law field, is a myth. And I think that it's used in ways that actually just further disadvantage people who need the most help. What is equal? Nothing is equal. And we're not created equal. I mean, I think that like philosophically, I think people can like 
like come together and say like all humans, you know, like we are all equal, but we are not treated as equal. We don't move through the world as equal. We don't have access to things that make us equal. The way people perceive us is not equal. When I would say, I think it's also rooted in capitalism, which goes hand in hand with our legal system in the United States of, I think people assuming monetary and social wealth is the goal of equality, but that's not the goal of equality or equity for a lot of people. It's basic human rights and the right to live. And so I think, as Chris said, like we collectively do not agree on what equality is because I think if folks are fighting for people to be equal, there are a ton of people who don't want equality. They don't want what white people have. They don't want the legal system at all. They want abolition. They want restructuring. They want revolution. We don't want equality. And I would take that a step further. And I think that the unfortunate truth is that there are a lot of people of color or people who are chasing this notion of being equal that's unattainable to them because of the systems that we all know to be true. So it's like, if I can get there, if I can just get to this thing, right, that makes me one of them, I think it's problematic. I think we need to really think about that word and, and what it means. I, mean, I see both of your points, but as someone who's studying law and someone who's in law school and, it, and, and it's trying to strive for these ideals, because theoretically, all men are created equal, that was in the Constitution because we live in a sex society. But I think there there can be a way that you progress law in a way that if people are treated equally or like folks interact with the legal system in an equal and fair way, rather than quality for all. We obviously know that's not going to be the case. People don't want that. But like, how, how does law fit in? I know folks want to get rid of the system, but at the end of the day, it's going to be replaced with another system, right? Or is it just going to be chaos? I just want to say I appreciate your belief in law because you should have that belief because you're going into law. It's like me as an educator. There is so much wrong with education. It is not great. It is inaccessible. When you go into a field and you feel strongly about it, you need to have faith in it. You need to have an imagination about it and think like, how can it be better? How can I improve it? You know, so I don't want to take away from that. I just think that you you mentioned equity versus equality. I just I just don't think that I think for me equality is still contingent on colonization and these ways that we've been conditioned to think about what we need and our needs. So if everybody gets the same thing, then we're all equal. Well, who determines what that thing is and why does it hold value? That's that's what I really take issue with. You know, when can we get to a place where the system just helps people achieve what they want, not what somebody else wants for them. And I think continuing from that, Paul, like your faith in the legal system, if it were to create a new system, I think it has to move away from being inherently punitive. I think our legal system is built upon placing blame and adjudication of who did something wrong and to what extent is it wrong? So how can I punish you for it? And I think that in and of itself is not a good system. It's not a system rooted in helping people become equal or equitable. It's a system about punishing those who are not in alignment with social norms that again, folks don't necessarily want to equalize with. If folks are like bent on maintaining a system, that system needs to reflect more on restorative justice and reflect more on 
like rehabilitation and education, which are systems that I think Chris pointed out perfectly are flawed, but are the things that I personally have faith in that are not meant to be punitive. And when there's that element of placing blame as the root or the purpose of any legal system, then that's not there to help people. It's there to harm people. Sierra, that's the justice system I'm fighting for. That is, like, let's see, you hit the nail on the head. The, the system right now is built on punity. It's built on punishing people. And like you said, there are ways to fix it right now or like ways to kind of like adjust. We're not going to get the like silver bullet right away. And I, like, that's also something I want to debunk a little bit. But progress takes a little bit of time. I challenge that. I, I challenge. Okay. I, I don't know. Nothing takes time. That's delay tactics take time. I don't want to disregard law, but rules are made up. Like my friend, why do you think the rules don't apply to people in positions of power? Why do you think that people who do heinous things still get off the hook? Because they have power. Those rules ebb and flow and bend when the right person is involved. And they're punitive when the wrong person is involved, or in this case, people who don't have money or access to power. And I want to complicate my argument a little bit because I do think the justice system does good. The justice system has afforded us so much, and I don't take that for granted. So I'm not just trying to say that, like, to hell with this whole thing. I think that there is nuance and there is gray, but I think that I'm tired of hearing a narrative that change takes time when so, like, things move at the drop of a hat for so many people in positions of power who, who are not suffering the same consequences, who don't have to think about their actions in the same way. And I might even say that I do think punishment has a place in our legal system, but we're not punishing the right things. The only example that is so clear, going back to kind of what you brought up earlier, is how quickly federal aid can come in the form of tanks and militia and armed forces and police officers to break up a protest instead of supporting folks who are dying or the need for social media to count how many days it's been since Breonna Taylor's murderers have gone walking free. Um, those are the systems that I think Chris brings up. Like we need to hold people accountable and folks are not being held accountable based on their race, based on the power they wield and the positions they hold. That's just something that I take concern with um, because it's very clear that our legal system and our governmental system has the power to make change happen overnight. They are just not choosing to make change in accordance with those who are marginalized. Well, and Sierra, I just want to go back to something you said that I think is really profound that people, you know, don't resonate with often because it's not in a book and saw theory and it's not revel it's just the power of listening and who's heard like let's take it back to the basics what do we listen to and who's heard like we continuously hear the same thing from the same people in abundance like like the black community in my opinion has been explicitly clear right like we just want to exist and not fear being killed by a police officer period like there's a part of me that's tempted to say for no good reason, but there's never a good reason to kill someone. I think Sierra is bringing us back to something that fundamentally doesn't happen. And I would even challenge lawyers who think that they're in it for the right reasons. Like, are you in it to listen to other people? Or are you in it for yourself? 
for your ego and to sort of advance things that you think are important, right? Because we know time and time again what's what the black community has asked us to do. I mean, we have information that dates to the 60s, like to this, you know, like in higher education, for example, we have demands that have pretty much remained the same for decades. So it's just, it's just very interesting to me, you know, when, and Paul, I know you didn't mean it this way, but like this idea of it takes time, I, I really don't think it does. I just think certain people are heard over others. And I think you hit the nail on the head in the last line. Some people are heard more than others. And a lot of times lawyers are in the rooms where change is supposed to happen. But some lawyers are trying to push for change are being are, are not being heard compared to the others who have power, who have money, who have the firms that back them up. Like we're dealing with a power dynamic where people are able to converse because you have power, you don't have to listen, right? Like that's that's kind of the nuts and bolts of like getting down to what the issues are when you're having discussions in a legal setting where this change is supposed to happen. But I, I had to play devil's advocate. But I would say, do you have to play devil's advocate or do you play devil's advocate to be heard? And that's the problem is I think being your friend and being someone who understands your social identities, you do not have to do that. But in order to be seen, right? Like we have to appease the folks who hold power socially and politically and educationally, our professors, our peers, college application systems. Um, And I think, as Chris mentioned, there is purpose to having a legal system there's reason why we have accountability measures but i think we need to divest emotionally and personally from feeling like we need to fit a certain role to be heard versus being heard for who we are and demanding that people listen regardless so that what does a person in the room do how do you make the values that we're fighting for show without having to play devil's advocate without having to play a certain role role, or like having to appease those in power i think there's a really powerful thing that happens when we stop trying so hard to get other people to understand what we're saying like i think that for example in my work in higher education, there like there's a difference between trying to force someone to understand my vision and just showing them. And I think that you sort of retain and protect your energy in a different way when you're able to focus. So if your focus is, how do I get all these people to get what I get the way that I understand it, right? I think that that sort of depletes people who want to make change for racial equity. On the other hand, I think if someone says to themselves, I will devote myself to making sure that race is considered in these conversations and that I connect with people in such a way that they hear my message because it's not forced. You know, I think that we have a lot more agency in that than we think we do. But I either give my power away and I say, like, you're going to take from me you're going to deplete me because you're exhausting and you just don't get it and you should. Or I say, you know what, like, let me just do my thing, devote myself to this. And then that just ripples out. And people are like, huh, I'm curious about that. 
I want that because if you're not talking about race right now, I think you're behind. So when someone learns how to do it in a really meaningful way that feels genuine, people will just follow because it's like, they're like, huh, I'm in, I'm in law school. Maybe I should get on board with this because I've been asleep. I have no nicer ways than to say, just wake up and don't kid yourself. Like we have enough evidence, as Chris has said, that if you truly want to understand race, it's a matter of challenging yourself and listening to the voices who have not been heard before. And we all know what that means and who we can look for to educate ourselves. There, there are Black educators all around us, people of color that have been providing demands and giving us ways to see our history different and people choose not to tap into it. And that's their prerogative. But if they want to do better, then they just need to do better. So I guess to kind of close, what tips do you have for an incoming law student? It's 2020. We have the, all these issues go, going on. What do we do? So I would just say for an incoming student, I think like you have a responsibility to Blackness. You need to do your part to be informed, to, to center Black voices, to, to, to be like a person who is entering this experience with an awareness of what it means to carry a Black identity in this country, right? That's, to me, that is a, um, one, I think a gift that you can accept, right? Or you deny. And if you deny it, you're doing yourself a disservice and it will catch up to you. So it's like, I think that if you make the investment, right, in understanding this movement, understanding why it matters and where it meets your work, I would say that across industries, it will only benefit you. If not, I think you're putting yourself in a position where you will very soon be considered incompetent. Well said. Thank you, friend, so much for being on the Advocate Society. But until next time. So, uh, Anthony, what did you think about that incredible conversation? I thought it was excellent. I think they tapped into stuff that actually usually isn't explored in these types of discussions. Thinking about what equality under the law is and how the legal system is equipped to handle its own deficiencies is not something that gets talked about a lot, especially in law school. When you look at the curriculum, I think like there's two levels of critical thinking in law. One of them is like thinking through the law, thinking quote like a lawyer, which is the cliched what you learn in law school, but there's no thinking about the law and how it functions. Even in the classes that you're told, I'll oh, take this class, you'll actually get into the you know, police system and the laws that uh, govern police interactions and things like that. It's still a very cautious environment. No, everyone's still afraid to say, hey, that's unjustifiably unjust or inequitable. Even when we recognize like, oh, that decision has absolutely and wholly affected marginalized communities in this country and has not affected the majority at all. But if you think about it this way, you understand why they made the decision. It's like, yeah, I can understand why they made it and say, well, it's, it's bad and needs to change. When Sierra said, when you see the federal government putting militia out into the street same day and taking so long to take other action, I could hear the, the lawyers around me saying, Oh, yes, but the executive power and yeah. the well, legislative yeah. power. And it's like, yes, that is true, but that is 
that's the law and we have the ability to change those things even though that's like at the constitutional level it's been changed before yeah. to uh, you know make things better and if we see amending unjust parts of the constitution as next to impossible and not even worth talking about then maybe we should amend the ways we amend the constitution and, that, and that's the thing um, I think when when Chris rightfully called me out by saying that change takes time, I think what I meant was that it the change itself doesn't take time. It is a next day type of thing. But the fight that for some reason in law schools or in, in the legal community that we're having um, over a system that I think we can all agree upon um, is flawed and is biased and has a lot of issues. But I think we have to take the responsibility on ourselves and hold ourselves accountable because those are the words I kept hearing from Sierra and from Chris where people aren't being held accountable and as agents of accountability because that's what lawyers are in society we should be holding ourselves accountable and like fixing our system for the better so yeah and I think lawyers are kind of you have it ingrained in you while you're in law school that you're smart if you're arguing back but the problem is People aren't listening and I think that's kind of the cultural shift that needs to happen it's very difficult to demand people to listen to you because they'll do it begrudgingly if at all so something that needs to happen within the legal system but also nationwide culturally is the willingness to listen to each other I think something that's baffling is a lot of people, once someone starts telling them about a racially charged in incident they experienced, it's immediately met with skepticism, which is not how I meet most stories people tell me. I'm like, oh, that happened to you? That's cool, or that's terrible. You know, I'm sorry, your car was stolen. But people, if people hear, like, this cop pulled me over and I walked, there was no reason for it, people are like, yeah, you know, I'm sure I'm sure there was something, you know. And that like undercurrent of skepticism and unwillingness to actually listen to people who have the experiences that are being talked about is probably the most pressing issue because until the people in power realize that they're not listening and the reason they're not listening is because they're afraid of losing their power, then I don't know what what can be done. It's kind of interesting, I guess, why all these issues that we are having right now in society can boil down to we're not listening to each other. Yeah. Um, and everyone thinks that they have, knows what's going on, they have the right ideas of what's going on in reality. No one knows what's going on. We're all kind of um, trying to figure things out. But it's also on this backdrop of these very few people that know that I think they have all the power. And I kind of push back and saying that they... Um, are unaware or not listening I think they know that they're not listening or they have they're listening but they're not doing anything about it or doing the bare minimum for them these are skills we were supposed to learn in kindergarten get listening <laughs> and caring for one another um, and I know we're all in law school now and, um, but sometimes we kind of bring it back to the primary school the elementary basics of listening to one another and realizing that whatever's in our power or discretion we have in the positions that we take um, after graduation or wherever our lives take us, we need to, as lawyers, be holding ourselves accountable as these agents of accountability, as yeah. facilitators of justice. That's what lawyers in society historically have been. 
and when millions are protesting on the street saying no that's not being done then I think we have to start listening rather than being skeptical or pushing back or saying change takes time when in reality we see how quickly law can act or can decide not to exactly yeah I, th I think a lot of law students can be put in one of two camps either they're they've always expected that they'd be in law school or they don't feel like they should be in law school they don't deserve to be there and you are in either one of those camps listening is very scary because you're listening to something that's uncomfortable for you and you're worried you're going to lose what you've just worked so hard for when you're not you're just listening to other people's experiences which are happening whether you listen to them or not yeah. so my advice to 1L students would be uh, like you're, you're going into a horrific place <laughs> uh, where you're going to learn a lot and you're going to learn very differently than you've learned before but go and being aware of the issues that aren't being talked about because they are there again whether they're being talked about or not and don't be afraid to start that discussion to raise that issue in class because that's simply what needs to happen. Uh, my advice to 1Ls, and I wish someone told me this like uh, when I was a 1L, but I, I feel like someone did, but I just was listening, is that really, truly, no one knows what they're doing. And I think once um, I like realized that during 1L year, I was able to settle in and realize and kind of do my thing. When you're going into an intimidating place, and someone like me, first-generation attorney, don't even didn't know anything about law, knew that I eventually wanted to go to law school because I wanted to change the system, but going in and just being um, kind of um, intimidated, like, and the thing is, if for one else, don't be intimidated. Really, at the end of the day, no one knows what they're talking about, <laughs> uh, and I say that jokingly, and I think those who are two L's and three L's also get that. Um, no one knows a perfect way to study. No one knows a perfect way to do anything. But like, just do you. And you got yourself this far by doing you. Um, so then continue to do that. And also realizing like what Chris and Sierra said, um, that it is 2020, that we, uh, we have an obligation now to bring race into the fold. Um, so I encourage all 1Ls. Um, I know you have a lot on your plate, um, but really keep up with the news and educate yourselves. Um, I hope you've been doing it through this summer and you have a couple of weeks before school starts um, to do that. But educate yourselves and also in terms of law, it really is um, a wild, wild west. Like no one knows what they're doing. And with that, thank you so much for listening to the first episode of season two of the Advocate Society. We will be having real conversations this year. So I'm super excited. I'm super pumped. I know Anthony is. Um, but until next time, folks. Bye.